Uh, we're going to be in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, so you can turn there with me in your Bibles. Many of you have probably heard this before. Often it's yelled or it's put on a funny mug or t-shirt or something, but the, the phrase, you're not David. Have you guys heard that before? Maybe you've seen the ads for those, that merchandise on Facebook or something like that, but it's, it's a common slogan often found uh, in churches where they really try to, they're trying to promote a proper reading of God's word uh, and because it's become popular nowadays to read God's word and to see yourself as the hero of the story. So Matt Chan- it's from a Matt Chandler sermon a while ago, I, I don't know, at least 10 years ago or something like that, where he's talking about faithfully teaching God's word and he says, we can't see ourselves as the hero of the story. He says, you're not David. He yells that out, but at the point he's driving it is that you're not the hero of the story. You stand in front of Goliath, you're gonna lose. David was the victor, but he's pointing to a greater victor who is God, who's Christ. So don't put yourself in David's seat. Put Christ in David's spot. You're the Israelites cowering in the corner is the point that Chandler goes on to make. Now today we're not studying David and Goliath. We're studying the temptation and fall. But, and you and I will never go toe-to-toe with a nine-foot Philistine. But we will absolutely go toe-to-toe. We will, and, uh, we will go and fight the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is who scripture says our battle is against. And primarily, the greatest force of evil in this entire creation is Satan. And here we are introduced to our great enemy who's nearly undefeated. We should not underestimate our enemy. And he is a much bigger threat than Goliath is. And he has a much better record than Goliath. And as unsurprising as it is, you'll know that we will study Genesis 3 today. And I would hope that you're already looking forward and saying, we're not the ones who beat this enemy. We're not the ones who crushed this serpent. There's someone else who wins that fight. We know that Christ is ultimately the hero that we need when we look at Genesis 3, 1 through 7. He's the hero, not us. We have failed time and time again as the serpent has come whispering lies and slithering into our lives. But do you, do you and I have any hope? Like, as, as Satan and the forces of evil come into our lives, is falling to temptation over and over again and loss to our, to our enemy, is it, do, do, should you and I see ourselves absolutely unable to find any form of victory there. Now, we look at that story of David and Goliath, and we see, we also remember too that David was just a man. He was a, actually not just a man, he was a small boy. He was an example of a weak man. But through God's power and God's, God's anointing on him, he was able to find victory. So how can we as believers through God's empowerment find victory in our battle against Satan? So today we're going to we're going to look at we're going to look at that in the scripture. So let's read Genesis 3:1 through 7 together. It says 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit in the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So this is God's word. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. So, so far, we've only been in all the, since August, we've only been in the first three chapters. We're just now, actually, we've only been in the first two chapters of Genesis. We're now just starting Genesis 3. So we're slowing, we're slowly walking through Genesis. So now you and I, those of us who have been here and listened to these sermons, we can remember that Genesis 1 is just a summary story of all creation, right? That's him, that's him summarizing the first, seven, the, or the, the, the first seven days of the world, seven days of creation, the, the six days he made things, the seventh day he rested. In Genesis 2, we zoom in more on the creation of man and woman and the relationship between man and woman, the man, the, between humans and creation, between humans and their creator. And then in Genesis 3, we can see where the story's going right away, right off of the beginning of the, 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 the uh, chapter here, we see now that the, we see the serpent mentioned, right? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This is about to continue. It's still talking about our relationship with creation and still talking about our relationship with God, but now there's this new character added into the mix of the devil, Satan, and we see the corruption of our relationship between man and woman, our corruption of our relationship between creation and man, and our corruption of our relationship between us and God. And Moses is writing, we have to remember too that Moses is writing these chapters to, an, to uh, answer ancient Near Eastern myths of creation and idolatry. And so this is, this is pretty straightforward how this passage relates to, the, relates to what, what God is doing through Moses here. If God is trying to warn the ancient Israelites of anything about idolatry, we can see this is the, for, this is the, the root of all idolatry here. What Satan does in Genesis 3, 1 through 7 is what springboards every false religion and every lie of the enemy that has ever been created. It can all be traced back to this fall right here. So he provides a, a foundation not only for these ancient Near Eastern lies of the devil, but all of our own lies. And every, uh, this is where we get the whole concept of sin. This is the origin of our sin. This is where death enters in. This is where Satan enters in. We cannot understand the rest of the Bible or ourselves until we understand the verses of Genesis 3, 1 through 7. They are a foundation for how we see our need for God. 
So as we study Genesis 3, 1 through 7, and understand the ongoing battle that you and I must fight, we're going to study the enemy, our inadequacies, and our great hero. Our enemy, our inadequacies, and our great hero. And ultimately, I've been asking the Lord and praying is that we, as we study this passage, that we would all walk away with a solemn sense of how powerful our enemy is, but even a greater sense of how necessary and powerful our hope is in Christ. So let's look at this. Let's, let's study this text together. Let's, let's look at our enemy here. Satan is introduced here as the serpent. Um, we know that Satan was created before this, right? All of creation has already been finished. That happened in Genesis 1. And Satan is a creative thing. He's not co-eternal with God. He was created. How did, was Satan created? Um, a, a few passages I would point you to, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time studying, uh, would be Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and Revelation 12. These passages seem to describe Satan as, and his creation and his fall. He, it, it, it describes Satan as this powerful, beautiful thing, created angelic being that wanted to ascend above all other created things and even above God himself. And Revelation 12 seems to talk about the third of all of the heavenly hosts being taken with Satan. We know that there are demonic forces in the heavenly realms that are partnering with Satan. Satan is not all, uh, he is not God. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-knowing. Uh, but he and his forces of evil with him in the heavenly realms are all throughout this creation. And they are, and their presence is felt by everyone here. So, we, we witness these first interactions between Satan and man. We can see how Satan and the forces of evil, we can observe their tactics and see how Satan enters in and tempts us. What we see here is the same pattern that Satan continues to follow in our own lives. So let's study how Satan goes through this process of coercing Adam and Eve to fall. First of all, he disrupts the creative order. So, Notice how he comes. He says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Uh, it's, it's very tempting when you're reading this story to your kids in the children's Bible to put on your best and most evil and creepy serpent voice and to, to talk about, you know, like the serpent comes slithering out and it's got the yellow eyes and you can just imagine just how evil and unfriendly the serpent looked. Did God really tell you? You know, like you get this really creepy thing so that they know, oh, this was bad. But that's not how it was. You know, there's nothing wrong with snakes. It's not like we, the application of today is not like Christians should hate snakes. That's not where I'm going with this, right? The fact is, it says the snake was a created being. He was the most crafty of all the things that the Lord God had made. So, there was an unassuming sense of what the snake was. It wasn't so much that he was, uh, it, that, that, that's this interaction that Eve should have known, okay, this creepy serpent is talking to me, something's off here because he's the bad guy. No, she would have had interactions with all the different animals that the Lord had made. Apparently, it's not that uncommon that she sees a talking animal. 
Uh, she's not disarmed. This, 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 is a, this seems like a, an interaction she's okay with. It's disarming. Satan does not come outwardly posing to be an enemy. It's not blatantly obvious a lot of the times. In fact, he often comes as somebody who's a friend, right? He wants to be somebody who's your buddy, who's going to be out for your best, and some, or just something that's totally disarming, something that's not alarming at all. This seems completely unassuming and unintimidating. She's the ruler of all created things, so what could be the problem with her talking to the snake? God has put her in dominion over all of the, the living things. And how, does, how often does Satan come to us in the same exact way, right? Where it's an unassuming, natural part of life. There's nothing wrong with money or with a job. Why should I be afraid of that? I, it's not, this, isn't, this, is, this is totally fine. There's nothing wrong with this thing that I want to buy or this sport that I want to play. There's nothing wrong with this relationship that... Uh, with wanting a relationship or wanting to listen to this song or watch this movie. Those are things that I can do and they don't have to be dangerous. It's just an unassuming thing. It's natural. It's just a part of life or whatever. He takes these created things that are often meant for our good and that God has actually given us a natural and good desire for and he corrupts them. And he turns them into idolatrous things, right? This is the, the reversal of the created order. The woman is now listening to and, and desiring this, what this created thing has offered her. She's supposed to be ruling it, but she does not know this created being is now ruling her. She has, she has missed that. And ultimately, it's not the, the greatest reversal here that we see of the serpent and Eve is not that just that the serpent has now put, her, put himself over the top of Eve, but the serpent is elevating itself above God, right? It's a complete, absolute reversal of the created order. This is Satan wanting to attack the creative order, to disrupt the creative order of how God has made things. He also disrupts the, great, the, the relationship between man and woman. Here he speaks to Eve and not to Adam. 1 Timothy 2.14 says explicitly that Eve was deceived and not Adam. So Satan sees this powerful relationship. We just talked about this last week. This powerful relationship that God has made between the husband and the wife. And he's going to take advantage of this powerful relationship. But not only is he going to take advantage of it, but he's going to put, he sees this clear created order that God has just made things in. And what might seem minor of swapping the spot of the man and the woman here, of, of reversing this created order. Now the man is following his wife instead of the wife following her husband. And all of a sudden, this is, this is, this is Satan's tactic for for. The very first sin for the very first temptation is of disrupting the created order. You know, it might seem like an optional thing to care about the way that God has created man and woman distinct. That might even seem outdated and it might seem completely har harmless to disregard those rules. That's what culture would want you to have and that's what a lot of the church would want you to have. To think that those, out roles are, those roles that God has created for man and woman are outdated and they're no longer important and they're really not something that should be emphasized in the church or in the home. They are completely different. But Satan here 
we see initially his tactic is to reverse those roles. So clearly, the way that God has designed things is important. It's important for us to obey God, and it is important to Satan in order to disrupt our obedience to God and to tempt us into sin. And we see this all the time. Like, if there's anything that Satan is attacking right now in our world right now, is it not the role of men and women? Is that not one way we see Satan launching his biggest battle? Why does he care so much? Because God cares about how he has created things. And think about this. Think about, think about the Trojan horse of the women's rights movement. What I mean by that is there's a lot of good things that are said about equal value and dignity. And I hope that over the last few weeks that as we've taught on the role of men and women, you've heard that from the scripture, God affirms equal dignity and value of men and women. But behind this, in this political, cultural movement of women right, women's rights, they redefine what equal dignity and value looks like. It's not just equal in value and dignity, it is greater. It is, in order to be equal in value and dignity, you have to be the leader in the home or in the church. And not only that, but you see modern feminism and the abortion movement come out of this women's rights movement. And that Satan has used this to wreak havoc and, and through, through our culture, this disruption. And it's not just the, the, the left. It's not just the, the liberal side of things. You know, lest we conservatives think that it's just Satan's only working on the left side of things. Think, we can't think that the 1950s housewife model is the perfect form of complementarianism, of the roles of men and women. Often, the, the, those, those stereotypes of a woman having her pearls on her ears and having dinner on the table and having a degraded sense of value and the man coming home and ignoring his family or whatever, this, these attack on these roles that, that were seen as the norm and even celebrated as good things, um, left and, and, and often adopted by Christians as the biblical perspective of complementarianism, have weakened our view. We have to be strong on where the Bible is strong about the role of men and women. We can't add anything to this that is not in this about the role of men and women. As soon as we do that, we leave an opportunity for Satan to come in and disrupt the order that he has created things, right? This is where we get our roles for men and women. This is where we find our equal dignity and value and our distinction in our roles of how God has made us in the home and in the church. This is where we need to find it. We don't add anything to that that's not in here. Now, it might have its own distinct ways in playing out in your marriage, in your family, and in your own life, but ultimately what we are responsible to is in here. So let's be strong where the Bible stands because we know that Satan, his tactics are to disrupt, to disrupt the creative order, to have us worship the created things and to disrupt the way that God has made order in, even in our relationship. So he disrupts and he also deceives. So Satan, our enemy disrupts and our enemy deceives. First, he deceives through questions. Here's some of the questions that Satan asks. He, Satan targets the provision of God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we've already walked through Genesis 1 and seen everything that God has made that is good. And we've walked through Genesis 2 and we've seen God give them every tree for food except for 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan's question expands, a qu- he, he expands the question to, to, to try to sow doubt in what God has provided. Just because God has said, you can't eat of this one tree, it's almost like he's holding out something from you. Is God really loving? Does he really want you to enjoy this creation that he's made? These are all implications of this simple question as he comes in, questioning God's provision. How often now, even more in this this broken world, does the tempter come with those same kind of questions towards us, right? How often does he want us to doubt God's love and provision towards us? Here's some questions maybe you have heard from the evil one. You're having a hard time making ends meet, aren't you? You're working so hard and you're still struggling. Does God really love you? Does he really want to take care of you? You're trying to raise your children to do what's right, to know God, and they continue to fall into sin. Parenting seems like a never-ending struggle. You're just suffering day after day. Does God really love you? Or you're even trying to have children. You're unable to conceive. You're living in a barren body. You want these things so badly. Does God really love you? Has he provided enough for you? You're sick or someone you love is sick and dying. And you're watching their body fail. Does God really love you? Has he given you everything you need to be happy? In this broken, sinful world, can God still provide everything you and I need? Is he still everything we need? Is he totally satisfactory for us? And if you and I do not keep our eyes on how he has met our every need for life and hope and joy and relationship with him through Christ, those questions of God's provision will slowly erode us and we will begin to look for provision somewhere else. That question, is God really enough? Yes, he is really enough. He has proven that in Christ. Satan will try to get you to question God's provision. Satan denies God's word. There's an outright lie right here off the get-go. We see the first lie in Scripture. She answers not knowing God's word. Right? She, you, you'll notice that Eve adds in other things here that she said, you, will sure, if you, you must not even touch it, you'll surely die. We see there's, there's a change now in God's word. She's not understood it. But now Satan is going to outright deny everything that God has said. In verse 4 he says, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. That's a lie. That is an outright lie. So Satan is lying. He wants to do that. Because he wants to make her question God's word. Is God telling you the truth? God has told you, you will die if you eat of this fruit. Satan has told you, you will not die. So she begins, Eve's wondering, is God telling me the truth? Can I trust what God's word says? And if there is one way that Satan can get you and I to drift, as individuals or as the church, it's from departing from God's word. Each time, we should recognize this. The reality of our sin is that all sin is lawlessness. Every single time 
that you and I sin for that moment. Whether you want to admit it or not, you have believed that something that God said is not true is true. You've been convinced of it enough to act on it. It's better for me to yell at my family and to gain control that way than for being, to be patient and loving and kind with them. It's better for me to look at this inappropriate image on a computer than to wait for the, that satisfaction in marriage or to rely on God for, uh, that, for his satisfaction in singleness. We believe that there is something better than what God has told us in that moment of sin. So we should recognize we are prone to drift. We're not immune. We are a church that is firmly dedicated to God's word, right? Thank God for that. Thank God every week we are teaching from the scriptures. And thank God that I see him working in each of you to have a dedication in your own lives to his word. But we rec- our sin is absolute, complete proof that you and I are prone to wander. Is it not? If we depart from this, we will wander. We will fall away. We have to remain faithful to God's word or we'll drift away. Satan denies and questions God's word. Satan dampens Eve's fear of God and death, right? You will not surely die. Even doesn't, Eve probably doesn't even really understand or know what death is at this point, but she knows it's a serious consequence. She's never seen it. And Satan tells her she can stop worrying about that. There's nothing that will happen. It's going to be fine. And this sounds like a friendly thing, right? Do not, don't worry. It's okay. It's fine. That's something a friend says, right? Again, this is not, this is not the slithering serpent who's coercing her. Satan has not harmed her. Satan has not touched her. He's not done anything. He's not, he's a serpent. He's not bitten her with her fangs and trying to kill her that way. He's just trying to convince her that the thing that will kill her is okay. That's all he has to do. So how many times do we hear these lies all the time? And they sound like good things. And often from people who would, you, you would you presume to be getting biblical counsel from, right? You're telling your friend about some struggle with sin. You're like, they're like, oh, it's not, you're fine. You're not a bad person. You're, at least you're not like them. Or you tell yourself, we all do it. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Your sin's not a big deal. Well, it's not great, but technically it's not as bad as it could be, right? You're not doing like the worst thing. Whenever you hear your response to sin is it's no big deal, that should be a red flag right there. That's how Satan lies. He wants you to see sin and say, no big deal. That's what he does to Eve right here. Anytime you hear your sin is no big deal, red flag. That's Satan talking. That's not true. It's a huge deal. Right, sin and death are a monumental deal. And the gospel says this to us. How does the gospel tell us that sin and death is a big deal? Because Jesus, God's only son, had to come and die for us in order to take away our sin. God shows in the gospel that sin is a humongous deal, right? Anytime we minimize our sin, dampen our fear of God, or a fear of God, and a fear of death, a fear of sin, that's Satan talking. Satan makes her question her own identity. He says, 
God is holding out on you. Listen to this. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Did you hear that? He said, you'll be like God. Hasn't somebody already said that? Right? You go back to Genesis 1. Hasn't God already said that she was created in God's image and likeness? She, as an image bearer, is already created in God's image and likeness. But through self-consciousness, through devaluing of, your, uh, of, of herself and making her fail to see who she's really created to be, now Satan has provided for an opportunity saying, God has hold, held out on you and there's something more that you need because you are not created good enough. Your life is unvaluable. You are not, you're stupid. You don't see what's good and you aren't like God. You can't. You're, not, you're not living your life to your full potential. Follow me and I'll give you full potential. But this Christianity, this stuff, this following God, this obedience to God, this is holding you back from really what you could be. You need to be something more than what you were made to be. So when Eve forgets the dignity with which God created her and she feels worthless and unable to live a life of value, she looks for worth and lies from the serpent. So he questions, in order to see this, first he questions and then he tempts. This is the temptation that Satan gives. He says, your eyes will be opened, right? This is not a lie. If we see that down in verse 7, the first thing they says, both of their eyes were opened, right? That's not a lie. We know that, that they will have an eye, their eyes open. But Romans 1.20 talks about, how we see the, the, the character of God displayed in the things that he has made. We see it clearly. We, even now in this corrupt world, we can see God. We, our eyes are open to us. And Eve knew that even better than we did. She was surrounded in a garden where everything God said was good. Did she not see? Were her eyes closed? Did she not know? She knew. She knew what was good. She saw good everywhere. She saw only the goodness of God. Exclusively. She saw everything that was good and very good. This beautiful creation. But she was ignorant to what was evil. And wise to what was good. But Satan doesn't lie. He tells a half truth by tempting her. Saying there's something more for you to see. And she's doubting that God has provided enough for her. She thinks God is holding out on her. And he says, your eyes will be opened. He says, you will be like God, right? We already seen how she, he's casted doubt on who she was created to be. And she's already, we already see how Satan has casted, cast doubt on who God is, saying God doesn't love you. God hasn't made you enough. And so what Satan is implying here, he says, when he says, you will be like God, he's like, you will be God. You will be your own God. He's not, he's been holding out on you. There's something more in creation. Forget God. You know what? You can be God. You will be like him, knowing both good and evil. And technically, he's not wrong, right? They did. Now, after they took this fruit, start to know good and evil. And God did know the difference between good and evil, but we did not gain power or authority or autonomy in our lives. We attempted to rebel against God and rule our own life at the fall 
and we became enemies of God. But he says, you will be like God, and you'll know good and evil. And yeah, he convinces her that she is ignorant when she has seen and known good. So he tempts, he questions, he tempts, and then he destroys. Immediately after this happens, you see Satan gets his desired consequence. What happens to the man and the woman? That's an experience we know well. That after you sin, you've been tempted and lured, you've questioned God, you've held, you've took, you've eaten, and now you've sinned and you immediately recognize the spiritual separation that you have from God and you feel this shame. You see this panic that happens in the man and the woman as they frantically try to sew fig leaves together and they show that they are separate from God. That's what Satan wanted to happen. He wants God's, this sweet fellowship between God's most glorious created thing and God to be separated. He wants spiritual death to occur. A separation from God and that's instantaneous. The moment there's sin, there's spiritual separation. He wants there to be an eventual experience of physical death. He wants to see this glory of God and his beautiful creation be corrupted in death and rot in the tomb. He wants to deface what God has made through death. And ultimately, he wants eternal separation from God. He wants to us to never be united in relationship with God. This is Satan's desired outcome of sin. And ever since that moment, ever since that fall, every single person who has ever been born has been born and will be born into spiritual separation from God. You and I were born cut off, separated from God. And if it wasn't for God's grace, we'd still be there. And there's a whole world out there still separated from God. And we've seen it. We've seen the pains of physical death. You know, even just talking this last week to a friend who lost his wife. And the process of watching her die. Or a friend who's just been diagnosed with cancer. And talk, having to talk with his little girls about how, how long dad has left. You know, like we've seen the pains of death. That's what Satan wanted. He wanted that physical corruption. And it's going to happen to all of us. And we should, be, we, should, we should be fearful of God's judgment on his enemies. Because we know that unless, unless there's redemption. Unless there's victory over this serpent. Every single one of us would face eternal death. And that is the, that is the destination for every person that has been born outside of Christ. And we are inadequate for the fight. We, so we see our enemy, and now let's look at our inadequacy. We aren't, let's, we're, we're not the hero of this story. We can relate exactly with how Adam and Eve interact with the serpent here. We see the, 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 there's a rapid transition of, of Eve's action here. This, this impulsive fall into sin that the, the way that this is written, it says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food 
She took of its fruit and she ate. We see this rapid transition. She sees, she takes, and she eats. And we do the same thing in our sin. We see, we take, we eat. She saw that the tree was good for food. Did you recognize that language from anywhere? She saw that it was good. We've been seeing all these things that are good. She's surrounded by all the things that God said is good. But now she's beginning to see things other than how God sees them. She is seeing that something that God has said is not good as good. And we all, re- we all relate with that moment, don't we? When we're about to be led into sin, where we're like the first inklings of desire as we start to think about our temptation towards sin, right? As we begin to see something as good that God has not called good. And this desire for that thing begins to grow in us. Just as she desired, our desire grows. We can't blame our sin on anyone else. The the serpent couldn't even force them to sin. It's not the serpent controlling them, making them eat this fruit. It's uh, it's their own heart. That desire for sin is born first in our own heart. That's what causes you to sin. You can't blame your sin on your husband or wife when they make you angry. You can't blame your sin on your kids or on the traffic. You can't blame your sin on your circumstances or how tired you are. You can't blame your sin on anything other than your own heart. It's your fault. That's where sin is born. It's born right in your heart. That's where it comes from. That's what defiles you. So it's born in her heart. Then she takes it and she touches it. And she feels it. She tries it out. She gets close to it. Uh, you know, the, the first dating relationship I ever had, and I, no, I don't condone this. If anyone has ever sent their kid to youth group, their kid will tell you how much I don't like teenage dating. But um, that's kind of a hobby horse of mine. But anyways, uh, but anyways, I'm 16 years old, and I go, and I, I'm, I ask him this girl's dad if I can date her or whatever. And this guy takes me on a walk or whatever. And he doesn't have a gun or anything. He's just a normal walk. But, but anyway, he's talking with me. And I just remember this. I don't really remember anything else he said because uh, I was really nervous. But um, he said this, and I, I, I will always remember that. He's like, Jake, the way we act in sin is that we want to get like right up to the line. You know, We want to get as close as we can to that line and then just try not to cross over it. You know? Well, I don't want to sin, but man, I'll come up right close. He's like, Jake, stay far away from the line. But when Eve takes it and feels it in her hand, remember, she doesn't remember God's word very well enough, and now she's getting comfortable with this thing, right? She's getting herself right up to the line. She said, well, I thought if I touched that, I'd surely die. Huh. This doesn't seem so bad after all. And then she eats And she immediately commits lawlessness against God. She is a rebel against God. She is a, the consequences of spiritual death come on her and she is full of shame and she wants to follow, she wants to be away from God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death and each and every one of us have been in that moment and we're thinking here, man, if only she would have remembered God's word, right? If only, if she would have known the real truth, then there's no chance she would have eaten it. If she, if she wouldn't have been deceived, if she would have had the real truth in her mind at that moment, she wouldn't have eaten. Where is the man? Where's the man? 
He's the one who knows this. He's the one who's supposed to keep her from doing this. She's deceived. 1 Timothy 2, 14 says she's deceived but not Adam. Where is Adam? He says, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit, and that it was a delight to eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. He was with her the whole time. He knew what was happening. He was not deceived. He knew God's word, and he still ate. What a powerful adversary we have that even in full knowledge, even before the corruption of creation, in God's perfect creation, man, his greatest being created, is still prone to fall into, or still is susceptible to sin, even knowing what God has said, and sits passively by. And we realize that Adam was never from day one enough. He was never enough to be the real victor, was he? He couldn't beat Satan. A third of the angels, they didn't beat Satan. Satan has been wielding his power and seemingly undefeated, destroying us. We would have done the same thing if we were in that position on our own power. We needed somebody to come and defeat Satan, didn't we? Let's read Matthew 4, 1 through 11. I'm going to read the whole passage and I'm going to make brief observations on it because I can't preach a second sermon on it. But I need to point you to where Jesus defeats Satan and his own temptation. So we're in Genesis, or Matthew 4, 1 through 11. I'm going to start reading. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He, makes him, he tries to make him question who he is, right? If you're really the son of God. But he said, as it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus answers and he finds his identity and he finds his truth in God's word. And he denies the temptation of the devil. He's being led by the spirit. Then the devil took him into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command the angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest, they, lest your foot strike against the stone. He says, he says, is God really going to take care of you? He tries to make him question who God is. And Jesus says to him, again it is written, You shall not put your Lord, the, the Lord your God to the test. He remembers what God says, and he remembers the consequences of putting God to the test, and he's defeated Satan again. And again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. He says, I've got more to offer you than what God has given you. But Jesus knows those kingdoms are already his. He says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and you shall serve and you shall... And him only shall you serve. And the devil left him. Behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus went toe to toe with Satan and he won. He beat him. He trusted in God's word. He was led by the spirit. He trusted in who God was and his provision for him. He holds on to God's word even when he's tempted. But here's, here's the thing. Satan was, or Jesus was still tempted. Is it wrong for you and I to face temptation? No, ultimately we see here Jesus is using this temptation by the serpent as a platform to show God's glory and God's victory. 
He has the power no one else has. Says Satan tempts him and he still stands against it. That's the power of only God. Only person who could defeat death and the devil is, is, is Jesus. So we are here in this broken world and in the gospel. There's only one way of victory against this enemy. And it's our victor, Jesus Christ. And he gives us sight. John 16, 13 says, The Spirit will lead us into all truth. We will see God through the power of the Spirit. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through him. The Spirit points us to our victor. He shows us the truth and the victor. He shows us the one who is good and the one who stood toe-to-toe with Satan and won. And that's, the, that's Christ, right? He restores us. We are not, we are not like we were meant to be. We are made in God's likeness and we need restored in that. And we see that we have been restored in that in Christ. We are made new and put in the image, restored in the image of God through Christ. And he is continually making us more into the image of Christ. Read Romans 7 and 8. After we, I, I, I seriously just, I know I'm already going long, but I wanted to open up Romans 7 and 8 and read the whole thing for you because it's like, man, who shall rescue me from this body of, de- of death? Praise be to God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it goes on to talk about how we walk by the Spirit. And ultimately, Romans 8, 28, we, those who we foreknew, he, also predest- he was also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. By the power of the Spirit, he's making us to look like the victor. We can walk in victory by the power of the Spirit right now because we have the Spirit of God with us. We can, fight, we can combat the devil. We do not have to give in to his temptations. It's the only way. And he rescues us because he took the death you and I earn on the cross. All our separation from God, he took on himself and he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? He experienced that for us so that you and I don't have to experience it anymore. He took on physical death so that someday you and I will be raised with him to never die again. Death is defeated. He took all of the punishment for our sins. So instead of an eternity in hell, he absorbs an eternity worth of sin in hell on the cross for us in a moment so that we are free of that eternity of suffering that you and I deserve. And we get a, 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 an eternity of glory, an eternity of relationship with God. We read in Revelation 20 then, finally, that after he's given us all these things, Revelation 20 verse 10 talks about the devil being thrown down once and for all. And who throws him down? Christ. The only one who will finally throw down Satan forever. Completely destroying him for the rest of eternity. Hallelujah. (laughs) All right, I got to wrap things up. (laughs) Conclusion, (laughs) brothers and sisters, by the power of the Spirit and our hope in Christ, let's remember and not doubt the love and goodness of God, being aware of the schemes of the devil. Let's look at all of our hope in Christ and not look at the empty promises of sin. And let's find victory 
over the enemy together through our great victor Christ. Amen? Let's pray. God, we see this morning a great enemy, but that's not what we're celebrating this morning. We're not trembling in fear because we see our great victor who is with us, who has given us victory. God, I pray that we would hate sin, that by your spirit you would transform us to be like Jesus and to hold your word. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that your words would be hidden in our heart and that you would reveal Christ over and over and over again from your word every Sunday and every day as we have fellowship with him together, that you would hold us from drifting and the temptations of the devil and that we would stay on the firm foundation of your word by the power of your spirit, God. Lord, I pray for the lost that are still under the power of this evil ruler. Would we, with the power of the gospel, go into this dark and dying world with the only victory over sin and death? Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude now as we sing of all that you've done. I pray these things in your name. Amen.